This is Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez, and I'm here with my law partner, Jack Derora. We are trial lawyers and business lawyers with the B. Hall Law Group in Columbus, Ohio. And today, we're talking about whether it's time to kill the death penalty. We're lucky to have with us today Hannah Cubbings, who's the executive director of Ohioans to Stop Executions, also known as OTSI, located <laughs> right here in Columbus, and Hannah Cox, who's gracing us all the way from New York. She's the national manager for the conservatives concerned about the death penalty. And because I've written a few pieces about the death penalty, I was recently asked to serve on the board for OTSI. So I want to welcome you ladies. Hello. Thanks for having us. I understand that the uh, conservatives um, concerned about the death penalty had a big day today. Uh, Hannah, can you tell us about that? We certainly did. So today we actually launched our 14th state-based group here in Ohio. So Ohio Conservatives Concerned is officially a thing. Uh, We've been in and out of the state quite a bit for the past couple of months, meeting with Republicans on the ground, conservative leaders, uh, some of your legislators, and really finding that there are uh, what we find across the country usually, but that there are many conservatives who are are concerned about the death penalty here, who are questioning it, who are really wondering if it's something that it's time to let go of. And so we were, were very excited to officially be here. We had a great lineup this morning, about six different people who joined us um, from our organization to give statements to the media on our behalf. And then we also released a list of signatories of conservatives across the state that we've been gathering for the past couple of months and, and had some pretty big names on there as well. So I think we're off to the races. How does your group approach uh, conservatives about this issue? Because I would think that conservatives are usually the group that is more in favor of keeping the death penalty. Uh, What is your hook? Well, I think, you know, in years past, that might have been true. What we're really finding is that this really is a bipartisan issue. I think that our name itself, Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty, really gets people's attention and and makes people come to us somewhat. You know, we either have people that say, I'm so happy I found you. I was already questioning this. I really uh, share your concerns. I'd like to get more involved. Uh, We've really found that a lot of conservatives actually come to us. I think the name conservatives concerned about the death penalty gets people's attention. And we usually have one of two things. We have people that find us and they're really excited to meet other conservatives that are questioning these issues. And they'll say, you know, I've been personally really grappling with this and I'm excited to connect and and organize and help defeat this in my state. Or we have people who are genuinely curious who come and they say, well, I'm a conservative and I've always supported the death penalty. I thought everybody else did. Like, what am I missing? What's wrong? And so uh, I think that that really helps us get in front of a lot of folks too. But as far as when we're going in front of people, I think there's a couple points that really tend to to move conservatives on this. As someone who was formerly pro-death penalty, I know what really got my attention and made me start reconsidering it. And I think that they're pretty universal issues that you see on the left as well. But oftentimes people just haven't really been presented with some of these factors on the right. And those really revolve around the innocence issues in the system. Uh, I think anybody who calls themselves pro-life has to be concerned when they find out there's been one person exonerated from death row for every nine executions in this country. That's really startling to people. People know we have wrongful convictions, but most people think that they're rare and they think that when we find them, it's evidence the system is working. When you find out that it's happening at that level, and it's not the result of the system catching itself. It's really more outside groups working pro bono, like the Innocence Project coming in. Uh, I think that makes everybody take a step back and say, this isn't how we were supposed to be structured to function. I think most Americans know our founders intended to have a justice system that prioritized the individual against an always overreaching government. Uh, We were supposed to have very strict due process, and we were supposed to have a system that was structured so that it was better that 100 guilty men go free than one innocent person perish. That's something that's very ingrained in in our American identity. And so to find out that it's not operating that way is, is troubling. 
And I think the misconception that, you know, I just want to add something really quick, that conservatives are traditionally in favor of it and um, people on the left are opposed is, is something I was definitely guilty of uh, when I started this work. But in such a divisive political climate we're living in, this is really an issue that both sides of the aisle can agree on for all the reasons Hannah mentioned and more. Um, so it's a really great issue to work on to bring people together. Hannah Cubbings, mm -hmm. Hannah Cox mentioned the founders. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to my next question, which is I imagine we've had the death penalty going back to the founding days of the nation. But then things changed around 1979, 1980 with a Supreme Court decision. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? I, I'll actually jump in there. Okay. So we, we did see that the Supreme Court banned the death penalty in 1973. Um, most people don't know about that, actually, because it was mm -hmm. only gone for a very short window of time. But it, interestingly enough, they banned it at the time under the Eighth Amendment. They found that it was unconstitutional, which um, says you can't have cruel or unusual punishment. They didn't find that it was cruel necessarily in its nature. They found that it was so arbitrary and how it was being applied that it justified uh, what would be concentrated as cruel and unusual punishment. And so they banned it for that reason. Uh, what that did, though, is that then gave a window for the states to come in and to try to add different guardrails and, and systems to bring it back. And so we saw that happen over about five to six years. Uh, states came in and they added things like aggravating factors. They added things like mitigating factors and all of these sort of safeguards that were supposed to ensure the system didn't operate as it had been doing, which was very racially biased, very arbitrary, based largely on location, had a lot of innocence issues. But we now have over five decades of data since it's been brought back by the states, and we see that it operates in the exact same manner. And so, um, interestingly enough, about a year and a half ago, Washington State Supreme Court ended up overturning their death penalty at the state level for the exact same reason. And I think that you could see other states follow suit. Mm -hmm. So all the states, in essence, that had the death penalty rewrote their statutes the statutes still suffer from the same weaknesses as they yeah. did prior to the Supreme Court decision. Yeah, all but one or two. I think Wisconsin never brought it back, maybe one other, but mostly yes. Um, and then since that time period, we've now seen 25 states move away from it again. We have 21 that have repealed it legislatively. We have four others that either have executive or judicial moratoriums in place. Of the 25 states that still have it up and operating in some functionality, over a third of them have not carried out an execution in a decade or more. Um, we're consistently seeing legislation come forward in those states to get rid of it. And so I think you're seeing a real zeitgeist moment where we're seeing the, the tide change on this issue yet again. And I want to touch a little bit on the arbitrariness, too, because we are in such a unique state. You know, we're having all these amazing, encouraging conversations in the legislature and with constituents. But we also have a county, Cuyahoga, who was responsible for the most death sentences uh, handed out in 2019. So it's a very interesting state to be working in. I, I think, you know, like I said, it's very encouraging and I'm optimistic, but it's that weird juxtaposition. I want to point out, though, when you say that they had the most death sentences, which is absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, tell people how many that was. I think it was like five or six. I think it was three that three? led the nation. Yeah. Three. So it's it's interesting if you look at not only what is happening when people are polled about this issue, mm -hmm. not only what's happening in state legislatures, but when you really look at what juries are saying on this issue, I think it speaks volumes. We've seen new death sentences decrease 60% since 2000. That kind of coincided with most states implementing some version of life in prison without parole. And now that juries have an alternate option to make sure that someone they fear could be ongoingly violent is not released back into society, they're picking that over and over and over. And so last year was the fifth in a row, the country carried out fewer than 30 executions. All 22 of them were from only seven states and over 40% were coming out of Texas. And new death sentences since 2000 have just plummeted. Um, I don't remember the total number we have, but I think it was under 
definitely under 50, maybe even under 30 as well last year. So um, to have a county that is even carrying out three is is unheard of these days. Mm -hmm. I imagine that's going to be a prosecutor's uh, discretion whether to seek the death penalty. Are you finding that the prosecutors are or do you have statistics on how prosecutors are going about uh, asking for the death penalty or asking for you know, some type of alternative remedy? Well, here's what we know. We know that the majority of death penalty cases in this country come from only 2% of counties. So the vast majority of prosecutors are not bringing death penalty cases ever, period, ever. They know that it wastes a lot of money. They know that it's something that uses resources that could more effectively go to solving more crimes and getting more people off the streets who are committing violent crimes. Um, Since reinstatement of the death penalty, which again occurred in the late 1970s, Every single execution carried on this country has come from 16% of the counties. And so you've always had these outlier counties that have been much more high usage. And I think that comes down to a couple overzealous, very aggressive DAs Mm -hmm. who often use these cases to get their name in the news, um, to maybe climb the career ladder. And I think it's something that is vastly falling out of popularity. When it does come to those prosecutors that are using it so much more than everybody else, as far as what their decision process is on that, that's really comes down to an individual decision factor. But we do work with a lot of murder victims' family members, um, some of them from those counties who have been very vocal about not wanting the death penalty and who were not listened to. And so I think that even in in the cases we know about um, anecdotally, there are problems with the decision-making process. A lot of people think that if someone gets a death sentence, it's based on the severity of the crime, uh, when in reality, all murder is heinous. And it really comes down to, just as you mentioned, the prosecutor, can the county afford a death case? and the defendant's access to adequate counsel. Because these more rural counties, you don't see them meeting out death sentences because they can't afford it. I'm I'm curious, I'm sorry, Jack. I'm I'm curious about the political will in this state because as you know, Ohio is a a state basically run by Republicans. Uh, It's a conservative state, uh, but our leaders I think are reasonable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it a merit-based approach or is it a you know, budget-based approach to overturning the laws uh, allowing death penalties. I think everything works together. We've And, you know, Ohio's not the only red state that's considering this issue right now. In fact, um, I'd say you're kind of in the middle of the pack. So last year we had 10 states that had Republican-sponsored bills to repeal the death penalty. Uh, there were 56 Republican state lawmakers signed on across those 10 bills as sponsors. Even more voted in favor of these bills. Uh, in New Hampshire, we passed a bill. We actually overrode a governor's veto there. That didn't happen without significant Republican support. Um, in Wyoming, very red state. I don't even know if they have any Democrats there. They fell only four (laughs) votes shy of passing it last year. They had over 40 people signed on as co-sponsors in the past month. There's only 90 people in their legislature. Um, So we're seeing significant Republican leadership on this. And I think that it comes from a multitude of perspectives. I don't I'm often asked, like, what is the reason conservatives are are turning against the death penalty? And there is no the reason. There's like 10 reasons. The Mm -hmm. system's really broken. And as people find out more and more about it, they're recognizing this is a failed big government program. It doesn't make any sense. And so I think some people come at it from cost. Some people come at it from a pro-life angle. Some people think it's unethical. Some people think it's really arbitrary and that the racial and socioeconomic factors involved are problematic. And so it, it really is a, a big tent, I think, where you're seeing all these factions come together. And we're working with people on both the right and left and from all of those different perspectives to get this done. Hannah Cubbings, uh, the, the word cost has come up a few times here. Mm-hmm. So... My understanding is that it costs more to uh, 
uh, go through with, with an execution than it does to give someone life without parole. That is a totally counterintuitive thought to the average citizen. Mm-hmm. Explain to the average citizen <laughs> why that's true. Sure. Yeah, that's a really common misconception. Uh, a lot of people think that housing someone for the rest of their life is going to be more expensive. But in reality, the death penalty is the most expensive part of our criminal justice system. It's about a million dollars more on average nationally per case, uh, if you're looking at a death case versus non-death specifications. And most of that is because of the trial costs. 70% of the costs are within the trial. Um, You're spending more time in court, more days and hours, bringing in more experts. So that's where all that cost accrues. A lot of people think that the appeals process, given the length uh, of that, about 15 years, I think on average, that that's why it costs more. But really, those are safeguards to ensure that you know we do have the right person to make sure due process was carried out. And as Hannah mentioned before, even with those safeguards, we've found out that people you know have not committed these crimes. Um, so that's where all the cost is is accruing. When you think about costs, uh, I'm, I'm speculating here, but if the cost is in the trial, if you took the death penalty off the table, do you think more people would just plead then? Because it seems to me if death penalty is what the prosecutors going for, why not force them to trial, right, and prove the case? Oh. Uh, You know, as opposed to a plea bargain where you go ahead and agree life in prison and then it obviously saves a lot of money. Is there statistics on that? Is it broken down? Well, so we see that most cases are pled out in our system, period. I think it's 95% of state cases and 99% of federal cases are pled out. So um, to go to trial is a rarity period, uh, especially to go to trial for a death penalty case. Um, I think what I can say to that end is we have seen several states that have repealed the death penalty, Maryland and New Jersey, um, that come to mind where we have members of law enforcement and prosecutors who have all signed letters attesting to the fact that getting rid of the death penalty has not harmed their ability to solicit plea deals. Um, And we also have a study out of Alaska which banned plea deals entirely, which I love, Um, but they have also not seen negative um, repercussions of that, and that's a pretty old, um, decades-long study out of Alaska. Well, you said something that interests me because every once in a while you hear a prosecuting attorney say, well, if we take away the death penalty, that hampers our ability to get a plea for life without mm-hmm. parole, mm-hmm. which sounds to me kind of a perverse way to run an office, right. but I hear that. So anybody want to respond to that? Well, yeah. and that's kind of what I was speaking to. I, I don't think that that bears any fruit. We see, okay. again, Alaska has banned plea deals entirely. They don't even have plea bargaining anymore. That has not harmed their ability to get conviction rates and to solve crime. And in fact, I think their clearance rates are probably above the national average. Uh, we also have, again, um, prosecutors and law enforcement in two different states that recently repealed the death penalty within you know the past decade mm-hmm. or so, where they've also um, attested that this has not harmed their ability to get uh, plea bargains when they are trying to. So we hear that often. It's kind of, I think, the last dying gasp of mm-hmm. prosecutors to argue for this. And it just doesn't really tend yeah. to carry much weight. I have I have a problem with, with using death as a bargaining chip in that way. There's an amazing book that I just finished up reading called Arbitrary Death. It's written by um, a prosecutor, I think he's still practicing, named Rick Unclesbay. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And he practiced in Tucson and Arizona uh, for the majority of his career. And he has a whole section about prosecutors using the death penalty as a way to plea down. Um, and that, that can create some real problems. Yeah, well, we see a lot of people who have been later exonerated, exonerated. who have confessed mm-hmm. to crimes they did not commit. And so when you're using the death penalty as a bargaining chip, I think it only leads to wrongful convictions. Mm-hmm. Well, pleading to crimes that one has not committed could be the subject of a whole other podcast. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and 
the psychology behind that is all very intriguing. But that's a subject for another day that maybe we should talk about. <laughs> I, I just have this vision of a prosecutor in a small county in Ohio uh, trying to get reelected on let's get rid of the death penalty. I just I find that hard to imagine <laughs> unless, again, uh, we give that prosecutor a, a different set of arguments such as, you know, listen, um, it's going to be easier to put people away. It's not going to cost us as much because we can't afford to do this anymore. But I still think a lot of conservatives vote because they think it's a deterrence. They well, think the death penalty is a deterrent. A lot of people on both the right and left have thought that for many years. Um, I think we can conclusively say by the data that that not only doesn't hold up, but that we actually see states that have the death penalty tend to correlate with higher rates of violent crime. And then when regions get rid of it, they tend to even see their crime rates fall at times. And I would suggest that's because, uh, and this is the argument for the prosecutor, when we waste this amount of money, about a million dollars in excess per case, for something that's not a deterrent, that's money we're not spending on solving more crimes, which we actually still do very little of in this country. We have about a 50 to 60% average homicide clearance rate year in mm-hmm. and year out. Um, and that's money we're not spending on programs that actually could work. And there's some really amazing, innovative things happening with violence disruption and harm reduction and trauma-informed responses to violence um, that are these partnerships happening in, in high-risk communities across the country that are, it's really happening under the radar that I think if people were to point to and say, not this, but this, you would get voters there because it makes sense um, when you have a system that's failed at the magnitude that the system has failed over and over and over again, at some point you have to stop doing what you're doing when you recognize it's not working and start looking for things that actually could make communities safer, that could provide justice for all, that could actually help victims more effectively begin rebuilding their lives and get justice for those you know, 40 to 50% of victims who get no justice because no one's catching their homicide um, perpetrator. And so I think that that is a winning argument and in fact, in I think the past year alone, we've seen seven districts that were high usage counties actually vote out their district attorneys in favor of people who ran on reform. Mm-hmm. Reform is popular in this country, and I think it's um, taken a long time. I always say that legislatures are about 10 years behind the culture, <laughs> but I think it's been there for a while, and we're finally might, might seeing be 20. that. Yeah. <laughs> But I think the culture likes it. It's popular. Um, We've seen Republicans in the primary phases of their candidacy come out in favor of getting rid of the death penalty and win. They've been attacked on that by their opponents and still beat them. Um, And so I think that 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 speaks really, really loudly, in my opinion. Hannah Cox, you've much of what you're saying is based on evidence, which is a wonderful thing, because when John and I present cases, we have to have evidence. But certainly evidence isn't something that always (laughs) rings true to a lot of legislators, I hate to say. So, which brings me to the Dispatch article yesterday, the Columbus Dispatch headline was the momentum the two of you are help building in our state. And uh, there are some people who cares about the statistics or who cares about resolving the problems that you've talked about. They just want to execute people just because it, I don't know, it satisfies some inner need. Hannah Cubbings, is there any response for those people or is that a segment (laughs) of society you just can't convince? I mean, when people are talking about this person deserves or needs to be executed and retribution for the crime they committed, um, I don't think we should be making public policy on, on emotions. It's a very emotional response and this is a very emotional issue, so I'm not discounting that. But just as Hannah Hannah Cox was laying out all, all the facts and evidence, I think that's what should be driving public policy, not emotions. Um, 
And I think that, you know, going back to the arbitrariness, there's no ranking murder. I think every murder is heinous. And so to say that because this person killed X amount of people in this manner deserves the death penalty over someone else who committed a crime, um, similarly, is it, it's ranking murder and that's it's offensive to me and it's offensive to victims too. That's an interesting response. What you're saying is put emotion aside, deal with the facts. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you had somebody speak today, John Mann, Mm -hmm. whose father was murdered, Mm -hmm. but yet he's on the OTSI team. Tell us about him. So John Mann is one of my favorite people. He came to us probably last summer, sent me an email. His father was murdered uh, along with um, his, his partner, I believe at the time, uh, about two years ago in, in Cuyahoga County, which we mentioned earlier. And, you know, he spoke today about how he really grappled with being, you know, I think his words were an emotional zombie and then consumed by hate because losing a loved one is horrible regardless of, of the manner in which it, it happens, but murder especially. Um, and he had a journey, <laughs> about a two year long journey uh, to get to trial of his father's killer and eventually came to the conclusion that I'm not going to get my father back. I'm not going to be whole again. Um, I, I would prefer not to go through the next 15 to 20 years of appeals, which you know he said he would be nearing retirement age by the time those are all exhausted. He would rather be able to grieve quietly and, and to try to you know piece his life back together. That doesn't stop when something like this happens. Um, and he, we hear this from a number of victims that the lengthy appeals and the death penalty process overall, it just kind of reopens that wound over and over again. So it's a lot of victims have come to me and come to Hannah to say that this is not what best serves them. Well, now you mentioned something interesting. What you're really talking about with John Mann is the issue of closure. Mm -hmm. That's a subject that doesn't get a whole lot of newsprint. Who wants to address that? And and why doesn't it get more newsprint? Well, there's a couple things to say there. You know, we do work very closely with many murder victims, family members. We can't speak for all of them. There's certainly people who are not in favor of getting rid of the death penalty. But there are a substantial amount who are in favor of getting rid of it. Um, And what I hear from them is, first and foremost, they hate the word closure. They don't feel like that's something that's actually obtainable. They say there's no such thing as closure. This will never end. Your grief will never stop. This is something you have to learn to live with. Um, But there are things that we could do to help them more effectively rebuild their lives and begin the process of moving on with their lives. And that's something that we don't do for them right now. Um, Many of them felt very misled by prosecutors and law enforcement who told them this will give you closure, go through this process, this will bring closure, you need this. And then they got through the process and felt really lied to and misled and 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 have turned against it because of that. Um, I think that also you don't see a lot of those perspectives in the media because it's not sensationalized as someone who wants the death penalty is. Um, and I've seen this play out in two states in the past year recently where I've been very present during um, campaigns to repeal the death penalty. The first was in New Hampshire where our sponsor actually was a two-time murder victim's family member himself. He had lost his dad and his brother in two separate incidents to homicide. Uh, He had a network of about 36 other victim's family members that he was in community with and that he kind of walked this this road of grief with, who came to every single hearing, waited hours and hours to give three minutes of testimony to say they did not want this, they did not want this, they did not want this. Um, And despite all of that, there was one murder victim's family member who showed up who did want it. She was given a prime speaking slot, got to come in, not wait, give her speech. She got unlimited time, um, and then she got to leave. 
Uh, we saw other lawmakers come in and say to our sponsor's face, "This is we need this for victims. How dare you? I mean, just the audacity of it was shocking to be in the room. And then we saw the media cover that one. And it was very frustrating and very disrespectful. And I think that so often um, victims are given different status in this country. We see it in the homicides we solve. We see it in the homicides we choose to spend an extra million dollars pursuing death penalty for in the first place. And we see it in the victim's family members that people want to hear from. And so often the people who are saying, we need this for victims. They don't know the victims. They're talking about them as pawns, and that's I find it very offensive. Mm-hmm. We saw that happen in Colorado uh, earlier this year, actually, already. We had over 65 murder victims' family members who had signed a letter uh, calling on the legislature there to overturn the death penalty. They held a press conference one morning. It was attended by very few. Um, definitely no one who was opposed to repealing it showed up to listen to them. They then sat there all day for about seven to eight hours worth of committee. Again, got three minutes to speak, um, took off time, traveled on their own dollar. The one person who was there in support was the daughter of a sitting senator, and she got a prime speaking slot, got to speak for as long as she wanted, actually maligned the other families that were there and suggested that they'd been paid to be there. They had not. Um, And again, that was what got the coverage. And so I think that that's actually a very sensitive subject Um, in my opinion, because I've seen these families mistreated time and time and time again. Um, I personally don't bring up victims, family members, because I'm not one. It's not my job to speak to them Mm -hmm. unless it's brought up. And I say, we do have people who would like to speak to Mm -hmm. you from that perspective. But so often when it's brought up, those people don't want to hear it. Um, And even on the Senate floor this year, after all of that, one of the senators who was opposed got on the floor and said, none of these people who want repeal are talking about the victims. They don't talk to the families. He was on the committee that we had been in two days before, and he had gotten up and left during the portion that the families were testifying and still got on the floor and said that. So it's it's a very um, problematic set of behavior that we see replicated over and over when it comes to this issue. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> Where are we uh, with regard to um, our legislature? Have you been to committees? Have you spoken um, You know, at the formal hearings yet? Well, we don't have a bill currently. Uh, we're still working on having conversations with the legislature. And as I mentioned before, those have been very encouraging. So I guess... You know, short answer is no, but we'll see. But there is some hope. I mean, I, I'm, I'm. It seems like there's something in the air that says maybe a bill would be proposed by the end of the year, or am I imagining I, things? I think in Ohio, it's no longer if, but when okay. we get rid of our death penalty. And there are a lot of uh, the states really falling in line with other states that have repealed. And Hannah might be able to speak to that more eloquently because she is. Um, in and out of other states that are doing the same thing that Ohio is. So not if, but when we get rid of it. Yeah, I can't speak for when the legislature is going to do what Mm -hmm. they're going to do. But as Hannah said, we have had meetings. We feel very um, like we're getting very favorable responses. We've seen significant leadership from your Speaker of the House and your governor in their actions Mm -hmm. and statements to the media. Um, And, you know, to be frank, Conservatives' concern would not be prioritizing Ohio if it didn't seem like there was a viable pathway forward to repeal here. We um, have been involved in many, many states. We were very involved in New Hampshire last year. We've been super involved in Colorado and Wyoming. Ohio was kind of lower down on my list, to be totally honest, until last year. Um, You are traditionally a very high usage state. You have a really big death row. Um, Up until very recently, you were still carrying out execution. So you were in the category of states that were kind of lumped in there with Texas and Florida and Georgia and these states that were still very much, you know, in favor of the death penalty. Let me interrupt for a second. I think we have, what, about 135 people on death row? 138. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but no. I th- 
it's a big death row. Um, and so I, we really had not been here very much, and we hadn't really been paying a lot of attention to it. And then things started to move very quickly in Ohio, and we started to hear from a lot of people, both in your legislature and in the grassroots. Uh, we saw, again, strong leadership by your governor and, and your Speaker of the House and the statements they were making and in their actions around executions. And so we started coming in and meeting with people and just sort of starting to see what the climate was here. And we were really very excited by what we found. I think that Ohio has probably been moving on this issue for quite some time, but no one was talking about it. It was happening under the radar, mm-hmm. and now it's really kind of bubbling to the surface. Um, but you've got some really interesting dynamics. You know, you've got a really heavy Catholic population here. We see Catholics are, are always very pro-life and tend to apply that um, across the board, as I think it should be, to all the way through the natural death of a person. Uh, I think you have a brand of Republican conservatism here that it makes me feel like I'm back in the Republican Party I grew up with. It's, it's very principled. It's very thoughtful. It um, it does revolve around a truly uh, true desire to see limited government and fiscal responsibility and and protecting the sanctity of human life. And so it, it doesn't, it makes sense to me that Ohio is where it is. But again, the, the progression for Ohio has, has happened very quickly. So I think the sky's the limit with what's going to happen in the next year here. Um, certainly, we're seeing a lot of really favorable dynamics. I never thought of it that way before. Limited government. I mean, really, mm-hmm. <laughs> talk about giving government some power that you'd never want, yeah. <laughs> killing people. Well, actually, like I said, I used to be pro, pro-death penalty. And um, when I first was sort of asked to work on something, it was in Tennessee years ago, and it was a mental health exclusion bill for um, the National Alliance of Mental Illness. And I said, oh, I was working pro bono for them. And I said, oh, no, I won't do that one. I'm, I'm not with you on that. And they said, what? And I said, no, I'm, I'm very pro-death penalty. They said, for people with mental illness? And I said, yeah. I mean, I was, I was so pro. And, um, and they said, but you're the, you're the limited government person around here. Why, you don't think the government can deliver the mail? Why do you think they can handle matters of life and death? Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, well, good point. Why do I do that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it spurred me to start looking into the system. But I think I was like many middle Americans who had never been impacted by the justice system, had never known anyone impacted by it. And for whatever reason, I thought it was this one branch that really operated as we had structured it to do. And, and when I started looking into it and found what was actually happening, I became very upset and very obviously concerned. And, and now I'm running this organization. So <laughs> I also progressed very quickly. <laughs> If you read a book like uh, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, have you read that, John? I have not. It's it's a wonderfully written book, but it's very sad because we see mm-hmm. the things that these our two guests are talking about, which is racial bias and, on top of that, really bad lawyering, primarily because of funding. So can either of you talk about that in Ohio or nationally, I think that would be of interest to our listeners. Yeah, actually something, and this is not Ohio specific, but something I was reading about the other day, I went to go speak to a class that's uh, focusing on uh, racial bias in the criminal justice system. And I think the Supreme Court case in the 80s, I believe, said it was a very close vote, but it, it essentially said racial studies and studies on racial bias alone are not enough to determine that there is a racial bias in our criminal justice system. Um, so I think that really, unfortunately, closed the door on a lot of race-based litigation. And I mean, I, Just Mercy has several examples of that. And we see it in Ohio. And, you know, when we talk about racial bias in the death penalty system, it, absolutely the race of the defendant is a factor. But more often than not, it's the race of the victim. Uh, 
that matters. So if you kill a white woman, what's the, can you remind me what the study I they did? I actually just wrote an article this yeah, you month did. in honor yeah. of Black History Month about mm-hmm. this. Um, so it's, it, it's a huge factor, and you're absolutely right that we the door has really kind of been closed in the courts. But I will say when people see it in print, it's helping us with the legislation because people are – there's no question that what's happening is wrong. I don't care what perspective you're from. I don't care what background you have. When you look at these numbers – there's no excuse for it. Um, so we do see that the county is the first determinant in who gets the death penalty because it's so few counties bringing it. But within those counties, who's getting it? And it is largely black men who kill white women. That is the number one um, matchup that you will find on death row. Uh, we see that across the country in 96% of cases that have been examined, there was evidence of racial bias against the defendant against the victim or both. Um, It goes so far even that we have studies that show the darker the skin complexion of a black man, the more likely he is to get the death penalty. And so it's definitely a driving force um, that couples with socioeconomic bias, which um, can go very much hand in hand in some of these locations where we see driving cases. um, You won't find people who had a good attorney and who really had moderate means even on death Mm -hmm. row. So I think those three things are really consistently what is determining who gets these sentences and i think that's really problematic because most people uh, in their heads think that this is a penalty we reserve for the worst of the worst whatever that means to you which is quite subjective but you know let's say we all agree if you kill a child that's the worst the worst and they think that people on death row all did these things Mm -hmm. if you start digging into the cases you can quite literally find a case on death row that has an identical case a county over and one person got death and one person maybe didn't even get life without parole because it's just so arbitrary and so much driven by these other societal factors. Yeah. Even within the same cases, you can have two, to- two co-defendants. One gets death, one doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to go back to the, the bad lawyering, as you, as you I, called I it. I think you should, because that's <laughs> yeah. an indication of the system itself flatly mm-hmm. failing. So uh, another speaker we had today was a man named Ross Geiger. Now, he served on a jury for a man named Raymond Tibbetts. I think it was in the, in the 80s was his case. And Obviously, in Ohio, you have to have a unanimous jury to vote for death, to have a death sentence uh, given out. So he, of course, voted for death at the time. And because he served on that jury, he followed the case over the next few years. Uh, When I say a few years, I mean like 20. Uh, So it's been a while. And in 2018, we were doing, you know, a clemency campaign for Ray's case. And that means putting together op-eds, letters to the editor, things like that on social media, just to see if the governor would grant him that last uh, chance at mercy, which would be clemency. And during this whole campaign, I get an email from Ross. And he said, hey, I I served on his jury back in the day, and I'm reading all the stuff you all are putting out there. And we never heard any of this evidence, what we call mitigating evidence, uh, that would have, you know, maybe swayed the jury one way or another to vote for life. And he said in that email that I wouldn't have voted for the death penalty if I knew all of Ray's upbringing and everything else that went into his life and what led to the crime. And so he's now become a real advocate for the cause, for getting rid of the death penalty. And that's just one case in, I'm sure I'm not being hyperbolic when I say hundreds of cases that have had an effective counsel. And we see that because they're overburdened and underpaid. What are, aren't there, I don't know. Well, I think the pay rate in Ohio might be something along the order of Last time I looked, $25,000 to handle a capital case, which is not a lot of money. Mm-mm. But in some states, it's four digits. Do you have any experience with those numbers, Hannah Cox? I've spent a lot less time looking at the money that they have and more so the caseload that they okay. have. But what we do know is that across the board, 
the public defender's offices are swamped. They're handling levels of cases that it's just not humanly possible. We have amazing public defenders in this mm-hmm. country, but they are so inadequately staffed. They're really, um, the odds are stacked against them too. I think a lot of people don't recognize just how much the, the judicial system is in the side of the prosecutor. You know, we have the labs that test DNA evidence are often paid by the prosecutor's office and they're paid based off of conviction rates, not just to find the evidence or examine the evidence. That's, that's a really big problem. We have law enforcement that works very closely with prosecutors. That, that Those bonds create a natural incentive to try to help them get a win. Um, we see that the prosecutors will often pay a lot of money to bring in their choice witnesses to come in and give testimony. These are all resources that public defenders don't have. Um, they're doing that on top of having such a huge caseload burden. Um, and on top of all of that, even for low usage states that aren't regularly bringing death penalty cases, the hoops that lawyers have to jump through just to maintain their certification or be death penalty eligible is a significant drain on the resources of these offices on the time that they have. And so I think um, I think all of those things are, are really problematic. Uh, we also have problems, you know, this is what first really got me on the death penalty issue were the mental health issues. But when you look at who's getting the death penalty, again, it's usually people of lower socioeconomic means. And it's oftentimes people who have some sort of a disability, um, even though we were supposed to ban executions by intellectual for people with intellectual disabilities. A number of years ago, we still see many of those people fall through the cracks because states were left to determine their own standards of what constituted an intellectual disability, and some of them did not adequately do that. Um, We see many people who have had serious trauma in their backgrounds, which I think is something for many years conservatives scoffed at and said that's a bleeding heart issue. No, it's not a bleeding heart issue. Trauma Mm -hmm. is a scientific issue that impacts the way the brain functions. Let's talk about this. Um, And then you see a lot of people with very severe mental illnesses that end up on death rows. And so that also can really complicate matters for a public defender, because if you have someone who has a severe mental illness, they probably have anosognosia as a component of that, which is a part of mental illness that prevents you from being self-aware of your own illness. So you'll see them fire their attorneys on a whim. You'll see them try to represent themselves. You'll see them make all kinds of confessions to things they did not do. And most importantly, even though mental health is supposed to be a mitigating factor, which is something that's supposed to make a jury consider a lesser sentence, people with anosognosia and severe mental illness will seek to prevent their illness from being brought up in the first place because they don't think it's true. And so you've really got a system that is just stacked against people Mm -hmm. here. Um, And then once you have that sentence, I think people also are under the impression that as soon as there's new evidence, as soon as new DNA is discovered, as soon as there's something that might you know, call that into question, that the appellate process swoops in and starts reexamining that, which is nothing could be further from the truth. The system is set up actually to try to move things along quite quickly. They're mostly just checking to see if procedure was followed. In fact, um, there's multiple cases I've worked on in the past year alone where there has been d- new DNA evidence and we have to fight tooth and nail to get it retested. And oftentimes it doesn't happen and they mm-hmm. execute the person before it's even retested. So yeah. um, it's, it's really a system problem and and the the issues with this are just endless because of it it's funny you would mention that sometimes defendants want to represent themselves we had a murder trial in Columbus last week and the gentleman the defendant argued strenuously that he wanted to represent himself finally was persuaded uh, to have an attorney with him and I never thought about the fact that there was actually a recognized illness associated with that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's very prevalent within the most severe mental illnesses. And so um, that is a separate classification of mental illness, which would refer to things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, psychosis, um, and things that are really um, 
pretty much revolve around different um, psychosis issues with mental health. And so uh, it's a very sad part of mental health issues, but it's why it's so difficult oftentimes to get these people to take their medicines. And that's another problem. Oftentimes these people won't take their medicines and so they'll they'll act bizarrely in the courtroom, which actually can increase the chances Mm -hmm. that a jury will see them as ongoingly violent. And so, um, yeah, it's the whole mental health. We could talk about the mental health problems in the death penalty extensively. We don't know the exact number of people on death row that have mental health issues, um, largely due to HIPAA, but also, again, due to the fact that some people don't want to have it brought up. Um, But Mental Health America estimates about 20 percent of death row probably has some kind of issue around that. Going back to the procedures, um, as lawyers, uh, we know how hard it is sometimes to win an appeal because um, the hardest ones are when it's up to the discretion of the trial judge. And uh, as, as both Hannahs have said, uh, when you uh, are on appeal, you have to uh, uh, convince the trial judge oftentimes on a motion for new trial that uh, what he heard or what he or she decided was wrong. And these judges sit in the trial and they get an attitude about the guilt of the person. And it doesn't matter how many times you find new evidence, DNA, they're just not convinced it's worth overturning it and doing it all over again. And um, I haven't had a, a death penalty uh, a case, but I've had uh, people that have come to me to do their appeals for wrongful convictions and other felonies. And it's just hard to break through because the court of appeals will say it's up to the trial court's discretion and he isn't abusing it or she isn't abusing it. Well, even when you have someone who's been exonerated, Joe D'Ambrosio is a perfect example. He's a death row exoneree in Ohio, which we have nine death row exonerees in Ohio, by the way. Uh, the national average is for every nine executions, there's one person exonerated. In Ohio, that's about one in six, just to point that out quickly. Uh, but the point is, Joe has uh, been exonerated and the prosecuting attorney still calls him a butcher, um, a killer. And there's just no, there's nothing tying him to that crime. There are things that tie others to that crime. And he's, you know, his story is incredible. Uh, he does have a, a show. Um, the name is escaping me right now. There's an episode on his case. But, uh, I mean, even when someone's found to be innocent, they don't they don't stop. No, no. You can, show, um, you can show the prosecutor the DNA. You can ask them to retest it. Uh, you can ask the judge to have it retested. And uh, the only thing I can explain is is that they were at the trial and they've decided that, you know, this person is guilty. Well, there is a certain, um, how do I want to say this? I don't, bias is not quite the right word, but I wrote about this. I think courts just put a lot of emphasis on procedure. And as long as the basic tenets of due process were met, Good enough. We got to keep the, I hate to say this sort of, we got to keep the assembly line moving. Mm-hmm. And although that works well in a number of instances, when lives are on the line, it doesn't work so well. And for that reason, lives are on the line. I mean, I've met people, and Hannah has met more, who were exonerated. Mm-hmm. And many of them, you know, we, there's 166 nationally, we work with a lot of them. And many of them face that same scenario where the prosecutor would never admit they were wrong. They fought tooth and nail to prevent it. They still say they're guilty. They still have a stigma that follows them around society. Many of them don't get settlement. Some of them have to go and fight to get that. But, um, you know, I think we have a system as a whole that really is dehumanizing, that doesn't value life. It certainly does not value individual liberty as we were supposed to be structured to do. 
Uh, and I think that that is a larger problem with the death penalty, right? That we have to really confront this in our history. Um, we're the only Western country that still does this. Uh, it's seen ongoingly more and more by the rest of the world as a human rights violation. And I, um, I one time had someone ask me, they said, what would you think if Germany still had the death penalty and they were largely killing large numbers of Jews? Mm. Well, we'd be aghast. We'd be totally, you know, infuriated. The, the whole country would freak out. But in America, we still kill our citizens, a large percentage of whom are black and a large percentage of whom are from the deep red south where we had our you know, horrible history of slavery. And so I think um, we've got to really grapple with some of these things in our history, with a lot of our laws, with how our justice system has functioned, with its culpability and some of the racial problems in this country. And I think um, we really need to try to build a system that is focused on restoration, that recognizes that um, even when someone has done something wrong, that they can still have value as a human, that they can still, even if it's from within jail, that they can still have some meaning and purpose. Um, we've worked with many people who are on death rows who really have had amazing conversions. If you're a person of faith, which I am, um, that's pretty spectacular to see. We've people who have gone on to save members of corrections lives from other prisoners. We have people who have led Bible studies for other death row inmates on death row. And so uh, I think that when we talk about the death penalty, we're also really talking about what do we think is the value of life. Do we say that life has value, it always has value, and you cannot lose it because you were made in the image of God, or do we say you're disposable? Um, and I think that that's something that is, we're continuing to come up against in these conversations. That's a tough one to sell to some people. They love mm -hmm. the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you talked about misconceptions. I've heard people say, well, Life without parole is, I mean, they get out anyway. Now, I know that as a lawyer, that's not right. But do you find, are you butting heads with that misconception? There's a big confusion about <laughs> life and life in prison without parole. And so if I'm ever speaking, I, I, but, you know, we have to walk people through this. Not everybody has been around the justice system. I didn't know the difference before I got involved in this work. Um, I also have to explain the difference in expungement and exoneration pretty often. So there's a lot of terms in lingo that we use that people don't get. And I think it's important to clarify for people. Yes, if you get life, you could be released one day. It does not mean you're going to always be there. And for many, many decades in America, that was all we had. It was life or it was a death penalty. Um, and so we, we saw a lot of juries go for the death penalty because they didn't want someone to eventually get out. Life without parole is somewhat of a newer invention in this country. It's not been around, at least nationally, um, for as long. But when you get life in prison without parole, it means what it says. You are in there without parole, barring some th something drastic, you know, a commutation, uh, a pardon, or maybe, um, you know, a new evidence. But again, within the life without prison system, as I'm sure you all know, you have even less checks and balances, less of an appellate process, less chance for someone to prove their uh, potential innocence. So, um, yeah, but yeah, we, we do run up against that. We're getting close to the end of our time. So are you comfortable telling us who in Ohio's leadership you can count on? I think we can speak to the people who have signed on to the conservatives' concern statement. Um, I, I don't think I'd feel comfortable speaking for anyone in leadership other than just pointing to the, the statements that have been made, particularly by the speaker and the governor throughout okay. 2019. Uh, but, I mean, I was really proud and impressed with the list that we assembled for our conservatives' concern to sign on. We have a lot of concerned constituents. We have a lot of um, operatives who have been around Cap Square for longer than I've been alive. Um, we have former Congressman Pat Tiberi, uh, former Attorney General Jim Petro, who was who served on OTSI's board for a period of time, and he's also a Denison alum, like myself. Uh, former Governor Bob Taft, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we actually published that um, list of signatures this morning on our website. So anyone who wants to look at it can go to conservativesconcern.org. And we've got um, the list of signatories of, of conservatives in the state who have signed our statement of support. And I'm sure that will be growing after today now that we've actually mm-hmm. launched and are getting some media traction. Um, but I think we see really strong um name recognition on there. I mean, these are people that if you live in Ohio, you're going to know their names. Um, some of them are former office holders. Others are people who have been working behind the scenes and have been responsible for getting a lot of people in office. And so I think um, it's, it's pretty significant to see the group that we've assembled. I'm really excited about the people that we're working with, um, the legislators that have already come out. And we had one of those this morning, Representative Laura Lanise, who was at our press conference. She's assistant majority whip, and she's sharp as a whip, too. She's, she's <laughs> really great. Um, and uh, we have Representative Naraj and Tani, and then we have um, Craig Riedel. Senator yeah. Craig Riedel. And That's so I, I think that those have been the people that have really been leading this and will continue to, but I certainly think you'll see others joining their ranks as we proceed. Hannah and Hannah, <laughs> I want to thank you for being with us today, and I want to commend you both on the work that you're doing on helping make a big change in Ohio and nationally as well. So ladies, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you My pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Hey, Lawyer Up will be back in a few weeks with another legal subject. I invite you to subscribe uh, to my blog, Consider This by JD. And remember, Lawyer Up.